Hello and welcome back to Nearly Ben Baptist Church's Sermon Archive. In today's sermon from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 through 25, we see how a church should honor its elders. We also want to say thank you for listening to our sermons here at Nearly Ben Baptist Church. And if you ever have any questions about our church or about the gospel, feel free to email us at mbbc at neelysbenbaptist.org. Thanks. Hope you have a blessed week. And so today we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. And the topic of our sermon is going to be a, a church that honors its elders. A church that honors its elders. And when I say elders, I'm not talking about the older generation. I'm talking about elders in the sense of pastors, in the sense of overseers, in the sense of shepherds. And so, so with that, before we get started, let's go to... The word, and let's read this passage from beginning in verse 17. Verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging and doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure." No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good words are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Cannot remain hidden. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you this morning and we just praise you so much, Lord. We are so grateful that because you live, we are able to stand here today and worship you, Lord. Because you live, we have the opportunity to believe and trust in your words, Lord. Because you live, Lord, we're able to meet and gather as a church. Lord God, I just want to pray that today, as we learn about how, as a church, we should honor our elders and our pastors here at Neely's Bend and even any other church for that matter, Lord. Lord, I just want to pray that, um, that we just flesh out your word, Lord, that we just expose your word, Lord, that we let your word be what teaches us. Lord, I don't want this to be about me. I want this to be about your word and what your word teaches, Lord. Lord God, I just pray that we have open eyes, open hearts, open ears to see, hear, and receive your word this morning, Lord. Help us to clear our minds to focus on you and your word, Lord. Lord God, I just pray that I'm just a vessel, a mouthpiece for your kingdom. Help me to preach with simplicity, clarity, and passion. And Lord, if there's one here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, who doesn't believe, I pray that today is the day that they believe in you that they make the commitment to follow you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Honor. What does the word honor mean? What does it mean to honor someone? 
Often, we will honor someone who has gained the respect of many people. Athletes, for example, can often be honored for the achievements that they made when they played a specific, a specific sport. At the workplace, some may be honored in way of being employee of the month or best car salesman of the month or the year. In the armed forces, when someone does a very honorable thing, we as a nation will honor those certain people. The picture that I'm trying to paint here is that we honor people who are honorable. They have good character. They've worked hard. They've participated. They've performed well. They've done remarkable things. They've done honorable things. Therefore, we honor them. Last week in our sermon, we saw that as a church, we are to honor widows who are truly widows by caring for them. We honor them ultimately by caring for them, by providing for them if they are truly in need. In our sermon today, we're going to shift to a focus of honoring elders, elders who particularly rule well. And when I say the word elders here, as I mentioned earlier, I do not mean the older generation. I ultimately mean pastors, shepherds, overseers in the church. If you remember several weeks ago, I guess it's probably been a couple months ago now, I preached a sermon about, from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I taught that elders, pastors, shepherds, and overseers all refer to the same position in the church. To help it make more sense, I am a pastor. I am an overseer. I am an elder. I am a shepherd. That is my role. That is who I am. That is who each and every pastor is in any church around here. Today's passage is on how we as a church can honor pastors in our church. And I say pastors because, in plural, because at some point in the future, I hope that we are able to have more pastors here, more elders to serve our congregation here at Neely's Bend Baptist Church. And ultimately, they too should be honored. So from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, we're going to see three ways that we can honor elders as a church. Three ways the church can honor elders. Okay? So beginning, the first way that we can honor elders is elders should be compensated. And I'm not just saying that because I'm an elder, right? I'm saying that because that's what the Bible teaches here. So if we begin with verses 17 and 18, I would like to be asked us two questions to help us break these two verses down. The first question is, who should be compensated? Who should be compensated? If you look in verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. He continues on and says, Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the ones that should ultimately be compensated as elders are the ones who, one, rule well, and two, labor in preaching and teaching. Now, how do we know when one is ruling well and also laboring in preaching and teaching? I ultimately think that this will be made obvious to us. An elder who is ruling well, an elder who is leading well, who is serving the church well, will ultimately be recognized by the people in the church. It will be noticed. 
It will be seen. You will just look at Him and know that He is serving, that He is doing what He is called to do. Just as we can recognize that when someone at our job or our, our workplace is working hard and putting the time in and, and accomplishing things, we as a church can recognize when a pastor is ruling and leading well. And as your pastor, it is my hope, it is my prayer that I'm always leading, serving, and ruling well, as the Bible calls me to do. It is my hope and prayer that I am fulfilling the calling the Lord has placed on my life to serve this church, to serve Neely's Bend Baptist Church as the best that I can. The second thing that we notice is that, the, that they should be able to rule well, and secondly, labor in preaching and teaching. They labor in it. And what I mean by that is they, they put the time in. They plan, they prepare, they study. They have a good outline prepared to preach on Sunday. They have a good plan to, to do on Wednesday night Bible study. They are ready to go. They, they, they plan, they prepare it. Now, it doesn't mean that every sermon they preach is the greatest sermon of all time, if you, know, if you get what I'm saying here. It just means that they have put the time in. They've labored in it. They're doing it well. It doesn't mean that they're the greatest preacher in the world. It just means that they're doing it well. So we have an elder who rules well. He labors in preaching and teaching. So what does this mean? So as verse 17 says, it means that he is worthy of double honor. And a way to, another way to think about it is that he is worthy of honor and also an honorarium, if that makes sense to you. And that leads us to the second question. Why should an elder be compensated? Why should a pastor be compensated? We've already stated that one is because he is ruling well and that he labors in preaching and teaching. But Paul takes it a step farther in verse 18. And he says that Scripture teaches us to compensate those who labor. If you look at verse 18, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Ultimately, we should honor elders because Scripture teaches that we should compensate those who labor. Paul cites the, the, verse, the one verse from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, which says, You shall not muzzle an ox which treads out the grain. And Jesus says in Luke 10, verse 7, so he quotes from the Old Testament, and then he also quotes from Jesus. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, the laborer deserves his wages. To give you guys some context as to what Paul is saying here, to make it make full sense for us, in the Old Testament, an ox is placed into a small area where they would take the wheat straw, or the grain, and they would place it all into this one little area, and they would encompass or enclose the ox in there. And of course, what happens when you put ox in a specific area and they walk around, right? So they're walking around on top of this straw that still has the grain attached to it. And as the ox walks around, the grain begins to fall off the straw. And then they take the straw out and then you're just left with grain. And now every now and then, if you put, uh, if you, I'm just thinking about, I'm going to go back for a second. And the reason it says you should not muzzle an ox is because if you muzzle an ox, what's going to happen? It can't take a bite of what it's walking over, correct? 
But if you don't muzzle the ox, then what can happen? Every now and then, as it's walking around, it can reach down and take a bite. And what this passage is saying is saying, hey, look, the ox is laboring. He is working. Therefore, he deserves some sort of something for his work. Let him take a bite out of the grain, out of the straw from below. I mean, if you keep going, Jesus in Luke 10, verse 7 says, um, the laborer deserves his wages. And Jesus, in this point, he has, he has sent a number of people out to preach the gospel. And as they were going, they were not to take anything with them. However, they were just to, to, to go. And if they were to stay with someone, and this person offered them food and drink, they were to take it because the laborer deserves his wages. That's what Jesus is saying here. The point that Paul is making here is that those who work in the gospel ministry as a pastor, as an elder, an overseer, should receive some sort of wage. They should be able to take a bite for themselves. And they deserve some sort of wage. I said that once, but anyway. But now... What does this mean for us as a church? It means that pastors should be compensated accordingly. And when I say accordingly, I truly mean accordingly. For some churches, accordingly may mean bivocational pay. For other churches, it may mean full-time pay. And if it's full-time pay, I believe that the church should be able to do whatever it can, whatever they can, to help the pastor live comfortably. And when I say comfortably, I mean that they're not stressed, they're not worried, they're not concerned about the next bill. Because if someone is worried, stressed, and concerned about the next bill, then it makes it really hard to do ministry. I think we could all agree with that, right? It makes it really hard to do things. But it also doesn't mean that they should be living large, that they should be living luxuriously. I think that takes it a bit too far. I think that's the church not stewarding well the money they've been giving. Now, I know that I'm saying all this as the pastor of this church, and to be entirely honest, this is a very hard passage to preach as a pastor because it's about me, and it's also about money. But this is where we are in our passage going through 1 Timothy, and we can't just skip over it, right? If I skipped over it, y'all would begin asking questions about what in the world is he doing? He just skipped over that. He didn't want to talk about that. There'd be some questions, right? So I'm preaching this passage because it's what the Bible teaches us. It's what the Bible commands us to do as a church. It's what Paul tells us to do. And if we ever have another pastor who serves as bivocational, or if he ever serves as full-time ministry, my hope is that we as a church will compensate them accordingly. And just, I want to take a moment and just say that I am grateful for you guys. I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful for the way that you guys have honored me and my family. The way that you guys care for Ashton and I. The way that you guys give us gifts from some several of you. Just give us random stuff. The way that you guys have just took us out to eat in some places. The way that you guys have honored and cared for us. I want you to know that we are truly, truly grateful for you. So don't ever think that we're not grateful we, we love you guys, and we're so incredibly grateful to be here and to be serving the church at Neely's Bend. <clears throat> so I just want to say thank you for that.
The second way that we can honor elders is elders should be treated with fairness. Elders should be treated with fairness. Going off of verses 19 through 20, it says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then he goes on, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. The ultimate theme of these three verses is that elders should be treated with fairness, that pastors should be treated with fairness. And here is what I mean by that. In verse 19, we saw that there should not be a charge, should not be brought unless there's two to three witnesses, right? We saw it's not the first time we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 in the Old Testament. It says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall the charge be established. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16, Jesus is addressing an issue when a brother sins against another brother. He is to first address them as a one person, one on one. And then secondly, he is to address them with one or two more so that there can be evidence of two to three witnesses. Now Paul is not saying that a charge shouldn't be brought up. He is only saying that a charge should be brought up if there is evidence within two to three witnesses. But why is this so important for a pastor? Why is this so important for an elder? What does Paul specifically mean by this? Well, it appears that even elders then faced a lot of criticism and scrutiny. To help you guys kind of think through this, we all have individual preferences, right? We all like certain things the way we like certain things, correct? And if a pastor ever does something that is not your preference... We can tend to be a little bit what? Critical. Correct? I've done this in the past with my own self, with pastors that I've had in the past. I admit that what I did was wrong. But ultimately, what happens is, if someone who is making a critical accusation against somebody that is not true, or it's just out of the meanness or the heart, or out of the preference of their heart, and there's not two or three witnesses to help establish that, they're just tearing the pastor down. They're making a false accusation. But let's just continue and say that this false accusation was maybe something not so serious. And now a rumor has begun, right? A rumor has been started. People in the church have heard it. It's even spread further to those outside the church. And at this point, the ministry of the pastor to those in the church is now damaged. The ministry of the church to those outside the church is now damaged, all because of a false charge or a false accusation that was just because of someone's preference. We, as a church, have to make sure that we don't do that. We have to have two to three witnesses as the Bible teaches us, as Jesus teaches us. We treat our pastors with fairness. We honor them with fairness when we have two to three witnesses. However, 
there is two to three witnesses and it is determined that the pastor has committed a sin and has done some very wrong things and it's persistent sin as verse 20 here teaches. Let's see here. I don't have it up there. But as verse 20 teaches, persistent sin, then the pastor needs to be rebuked. Verse 21, let's see here, when a pastor is rebuked for their sin, it shows everyone that sin is a serious thing. It shows everyone. If you look at verse 20, it says that it shows the rest of them, meaning the congregation and the church, that sin is a big deal, but also to the other pastors and elders, that sin is a big deal. But remember, but this only happens when there is persistent sin, unrepentant sin. Paul goes on and, and charges Timothy in verse 21 to keep these rules without prejudging and without impartiality or without partiality. Because it seems as if the Ephesian elders at the time were dealing with some serious sin issues and Timothy is charged to deal with these elders appropriately. However, he isn't to prejudge and he is to be impartial. And as a church, we must not prejudge and we must also not be partial. To tell you guys a story of a pastor in a church, this guy started the church, he planted the church, um, and after like 10 to 15 years, the church grew to about 20,000 people. However, this pastor had a sin. He led by being a bully. He was a bully. He was very controlling. He was very aggressive. He was very bullish, if that makes sense. The church was growing. People were getting saved. People were joining the church. He was writing books. He's doing all this stuff. And people were recognizing these bully characteristics in this person, seeing the sin. But because they looked at his fruit of salvation, people joining the church, the growth of the church, and all those great things that were happening, they were partial to him. At some point, it became really evident that the church needed to do something. They removed this man from the pastoral role. I think he actually quit before he could get fired because he knew that what he had done was wrong. The church of 20,000 people would quickly dissolve within like three months. A church of 20,000 people gone. All because of one pastor's sin and the church's partiality to him. This is why this matters. This is why Paul is teaching this passage here. Pastors are to be held accountable on the characteristics or on the account of two to three witnesses. The point that I'm trying to make here is it doesn't matter how much good is happening. If a leader is leading, living in sin, the church must address the issue. Or else it can bring devastating, devastating things upon themselves. The third way that we can honor elders is elders should be appointed with caution. Elders should be appointed with caution. Now it may be possible that you're asking the question, how do we honor elders by appointing them with caution? Let's discover one. In verse 22, Paul says this, Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Why would this be a big deal? Two reasons. 
The first reason is that by appointing someone, the appointee becomes associated with the appointed. If you look, if you go back, if you look at this, nor take part in the sins of others, what Paul is saying is whenever you appoint someone or you lay hands on someone, you are now associated with said person. And you're partaking in their sins by being associated with them in some way. Now let's say, for example, just kind of give you a good picture. Let's say that there's manager at this big box store and is in need of hiring an assistant store manager. Let's say that spring is right around the corner and the assistant manager they needed was the manager for the lawn and garden area, right? Have anybody ever been to a, a box store in the springtime at the lawn and garden area, right? It is packed. There's tons of people running around. It's a big deal in the springtime. It's a big need. So they interviewed three people, and this one guy stands out. Without doing any further research or calling references on this person, they hire him the next day. They put him to work three days later. He starts his job, and by the end of the week, the lawn and garden department is a disaster. It is a dumpster fire. Nothing is in the correct place. Things are stacked up on the floor, not in the shelves. Flowers didn't get watered. They died. This place has become a dumpster fire. The store manager and the HR manager decide, okay, we, it's not looking good, so we have to fire this dude. So they, they fired the dude and come to find out he had actually just recently been fired from another box store just down the road, right? Because of similar reasons. The point is, because they hired this man hastily and didn't do their due diligence, they brought someone who almost burned the store down. And the hiring manager is now associated with said person. In some ways, it was the HR manager's fault, right? As a church, if we appoint someone as an elder out of haste, because, and he fails due to sin or due to lurk of lack, or the lack of work, that's it, lack of ability, then we as a church become associated with said person. We see this all the time in professional sports. They sign somebody, and then a few weeks go by, a few months go by, and then they do something horribly wrong, such as physical abuse to their spouse or something along those lines. And then what does the professional sports team immediately do? They kick him off the team. You know why? They don't want to be associated with that person because it makes them also look bad. We all understand that, right? That's what's happening here. Whenever we hire someone out of haste or we bring someone in as out of haste, it can result in things like that. We have a God who is worthy of all good things. We cannot look upon sin and we must do our due diligence so we can be a church that pleases God. Which is why Paul tells Timothy to keep himself pure in verse 22. However, Paul adds a little statement in parentheses afterwards. This little statement right here, if you look, the passage is in parentheses. In most of your Bibles, it probably is in parentheses. So it's almost like Paul is talking to somebody and then he takes a little slide over and says, Hey! Don't do this, or do this. Does that make sense? You follow me? It's a little like sidestep. I'm going to give you a little note here just for you, and then I'm going to go back to what I'm talking about. And that's what's happening here in this verse. And to be honest, there is myself and many scholars and commentators 
who are all kind of confused at exactly what Paul is trying to say here about why Paul sandwiches this little anecdotal dote right in the middle of this passage. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you read it all the way through. I'm sure some of you were like, whoa, where did that come from? Why did he tell him that? The best thing that makes sense to me is Paul wants Timothy to keep himself pure. However, Paul does not want Timothy to fall into asceticism. Has anybody ever heard that word? Very few of us, maybe. The word asceticism is a big word, I get it. The word asceticism, asceticism means to severely deny or avoid bodily pleasures and needs such as food. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, we see that there are false teachers who are forbidding two things. They're forbidding marriage, and they're telling people to abstain from certain foods. Now, we know that marriage is what? Marriage is a good thing, right? We also know that food is a good thing because it is very nutritious to us. Forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain foods is a form of asceticism. And these people were abusing it in the form of, you must live like this or else you won't be saved. And that is legalism, my friends. That goes back to the Old Testament. And that's not what we are. That's not who we are. We are no longer under the covenant of law. We're now under the covenant of grace and mercy. Paul is telling Timothy to remain pure in your life, but but don't become legalistic. Don't refrain from something that can actually help your body, which is why Paul says to use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. During this time period, according to commentators, Excuse me, water was not very clean, right? It was not very clean. It had bacteria and other harmful things in it. However, whenever you mixed wine with water, the alcohol content in the wine would purify the water. It would kill the bacteria. It would kill all the other harmful things. Essentially, it became a medicine, alleviating Timothy's stomach issues. Now, as I just stated, this verse is all about health and how wine was used for medical purposes. Therefore, this verse is not a verse that endorses social drinking or the consumption of alcohol. It only speaks of this in the form of medicinal purposes because Timothy apparently has some issues with his stomach and he needed help. Now, enough about that, and let's move on to the second reason for not being hasty. If you look at verses 24 and 25, the sins of some people are conspicuous. They making basically mean the sins of some people are very evident going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later, meaning they remain hidden. And then in verse 25, so also good works are conspicuous or are made evident, but even those that are not or that or not cannot remain hidden. The first thing that Paul addresses here is how for some people their sins are evident. It is there for all to see. But for others it appears later. And the second thing he addresses is how for some people, whenever they do good deeds, good works, it is evident. It's there for all to see. But for others, these good works are hidden. They only come out later. The ultimate point that Paul is trying to make here is that 
the heart of a person sometimes doesn't show initially. Sometimes it takes a few days. Sometimes it takes a few weeks, a few years for someone to reveal their true intentions of their heart. Going back to the story of the man that was hired at the box store in the lawn and garden department with haste. This guy in the initial interview interview appeared great. He wore the right clothes. He had great answers, great responses. He even asked questions in return. He looked well put together. However, his true work that did not reveal itself until a few weeks when the department became a dumpster fire because of his management. Now, had the HR did their due diligence, called the references and looked at the resume and seen that they were fired from their previous job, they would not have hired him, right? At least I wouldn't have. But how does this honor someone who might be appointed as an elder in our church? That's the ultimate question, right? How are we honoring someone with caution by not hiring them in haste? Well, ultimately, we honor them by doing due diligence and not putting themselves or putting the person possibly hired in a position that they never should have been put in. We all know those pastors that get hired and then several months go by and they're immediately gone, right? Because it was just too challenging. It was too hard. It was tough work. The second way it can honor them is it honors them by doing due diligence and determining that, yes, this person is certainly qualified. He meets the qualifications laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And first, uh, in Titus chapter 1, verses um, 5 through 10, I believe it is. He meets those qualifications. He is able and has the heart to serve in this role. Therefore, we should hire him. We believe he is capable of doing this. We also honor them by doing due diligence and ensuring that they have the right calling and heart and passion for the position. And thus we honor elders in our church by not being hasty and appointing them too soon, too quick, or any other way. So, in our sermon today from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 through 24, or 25, we have seen three ways that the church can honor elders. Ultimately, elders should be compensated And the second way, elders should be treated with fairness. And thirdly, elders should be appointed with caution. Last week, we discussed how we are to be a caring church family. How we are to appeal to those in our church as family. And how we are to care for those who are widows in our church. We honor those who are truly widows. Today's sermon is ultimately a continuation of that. Because the reality is, pastors are church members. Pastors are church family members too. I think so often that we as churches have a tendency to think that pastors are not really a part of that church family. We just brought that guy in to lead us, to preach to us and teach us. He's not really a part of our family. The reality is, pastors are family too. I'm a member here at Neely's Bend Baptist Church just like you are a member here at Neely's Bend Baptist Church. We're all one big family. We just all have different roles in this church. So when we honor elders or pastors in these three ways, we are caring 
for those in our church family, just as we are honoring and caring for those who are widows in our church family. So with that, I want to offer us one way to live this out. One way to live this out. Pray for and encourage pastors. Pray for and encourage pastors. Several weeks ago, we read through and preached through 1 Timothy chapter 3 on the part where it gives the qualifications for elders. And we saw that that is a big task, right? Those are some hefty qualifications. Now granted, every one of us should be living in those ways. It's a big challenge, right? And one thing that the devil wants to do more than anything is take the leader of the church down. Because if he knows if he can stop the leader, if he can stop an elder, if he can stop a pastor, then what happens? It stops a lot of things. It prevents a lot of things from happening. So as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 25, at the conclusion of his letter to the Thessalonians, he says this, Brothers, pray for us. An apostle, an apostle is saying, Hey, look, pray for us. He knew it was difficult work. He knew it was hard work. He knew that Satan was trying to attack him from every which direction. He knew that Satan was setting traps and putting, put, putting all sorts of stuff out there in front of him to try to attack him, to get him to mess up. And he wanted people to be praying for him. And I want you to know as your pastor, I covet your prayers. I long for your prayers. I want you to pray for me. And I don't say this just to be saying this, and I don't want to sound puffed up and conceited, because I'm not that. I don't want to be that. I say this because I know that Satan is doing everything and he can to attack me. So pray for me. Pray for me. But not only just me, pray for all the local pastors in our area. If you drive by a church down down the road, just take a moment and say a prayer for that pastor. If you're in a grocery store and you come across another pastor, take a moment and encourage them. Give them a word of encouragement. Let them know they're doing a good job. Let them know he's serving the Lord well. I want to close by this. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord as Savior of your life, you've never committed yourself to Him as Lord and Savior, you've never believed the Gospel, you've never placed Jesus in your heart, I want to teach you today that the Gospel is readily available for you to believe. Maybe you're like Paul, whenever he was trying to prevent Timothy from becoming legalistic. How he was trying to prevent Timothy from saying, oh, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do that. Maybe you were saying that I have to live this way, I have to live this way, I have to do this, and I have to do that in order to go to heaven. Now, let me tell you something. We sang earlier, it is in Christ alone. Nothing that you do gets you to heaven. The only contribution that you make to your salvation is sin. The Lord saves you. You follow Him by believing and repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. By believing in the virgin birth, believing that Jesus was born of a virgin, 
as we're going to soon celebrate here in December, believing that Jesus lived a sinless life, a perfect life, so He could be the ultimate sacrifice for you. That He died on the cross and that He rose, buried in the grave. And then three days later, He rose again, overcoming sin, overcoming death, so that you can have life. Because He lives, you can have life. Take this moment to believe in Him, to trust in Him as Lord and Savior of your life. And if that is you today, please come find me during the invitational song. Find me when you're walking out the door. Give me a call this week. The invitation is always open, always there. Believe in Jesus today. Trust in His Word and His Gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for how great and awesome you are, Lord. We thank you so much for your gospel. We thank you so much for Jesus and the way you sent him to die for us on the cross, Lord. Lord, I just thank you for this passage this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray that we as a church live this passage out. Lord, help us be a church that honors our elders here at Neely's Bend, Lord. Help us to be a church that honors our pastors here at Neely's Bend, Lord. Lord, help us to pray for the pastors here and encourage them, encourage them, Lord. And Lord, I just want to pray that, that you will help us be a church family that cares for those in our family. God, you are so great. You're so awesome. We thank you so much for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.